Hello, everyone. Welcome to Thrive with Shirley McRae. When we get through this pandemic, and yes, we will get through it, what will the state of our mental health be like on the other side? Before anyone ever heard of COVID-19, our health system was fragmented and savagely unequal. How can we come out of the pandemic stronger than we were going in? The National Alliance on Mental Illness has been grappling with that same question. And today, my guest is their new CEO, Dan Gillison. NAMI is the nation's largest grassroots mental health organization with over 600 local affiliates, including the New York City metro area and Staten Island. NAMI works to improve the lives of people with mental illness and their loved ones. What started as a small group of families gathered around a kitchen table over 40 years ago has grown into an alliance of more than 600 state and local affiliates across the country that work with communities to provide support and education that was not previously available to those in need. Dan has many years of experience leading organizations in the private and nonprofit sectors, and now he is bringing that expertise to serve families in the midst of a global pandemic. Dan, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's, it's actually an honor to be here, so thank you very much. What drew you to focus your career on mental health and serve people with mental illness and their families? Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, um, first, uh, um, I spent about 32 years in the private sector and in all of the work that I did in, in industry, I was always looking to be involved in work that we did in the communities. And as, as I matriculated through, I had the opportunity to work in several different not-for-profit sectors in one manner, way, shape, or form, or even write checks to them on behalf of the private sector organizations I worked for. So as uh, time passed on, I had the opportunity to make a difference. I started out uh, working with the, uh, the counties, the National Association of Counties, and, and doing that work, um, ran the County Solutions and Innovation, and got to visit many of the communities and counties around the country and, and cities, uh, and then worked uh, for uh, the uh, American Psychiatric Association Foundation as their executive director, all trying to do work where we could make a difference in communities where people live, learn, work, and worship. So with that said, when the opportunity came, opportunity came, excuse me, to uh, lead uh, NAMI, it, it, was, uh, uh, it was a calling um, in 1986. Um, right now, at this station of life, I should be enjoying life with one of my contemporaries who I grew up with. We were the oldest in our family. We were the ones that were you know, I was going to go off and do great things and go to college. She was going to go off and do great things. And we were, again, the big the big brother and big sister. Regrettably, she lost her life to suicide in uh, 86 uh, while I was uh, working. That had, uh, that, yeah, that had an incredible impact on, on our family. And mm -hmm. uh, 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 that was on uh, uh, my uncle's family. And that family never never recovered. And we didn't know about NAMI. So I've looked at this as an opportunity for families to know about NAMI when my family didn't. And we didn't have that resource. And nor did she have that as uh, she was uh, going through uh, mental illness. So it's an opportunity. Uh, I, I hope to build it as a legacy. Um, so, um, And I just think it's a wonderful organization making a difference in communities across the country. 
It is making a difference. I mean, so many of us are drawn to this work because of our personal stories, um, because of our families. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, um, but I, I have to say I'm really um, just delighted that you are at the helm of this organization, which has the capacity to do so much to help other people. You know, I suspect many of our listeners don't know a lot about NAMI and why the organization was started and who you serve. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yes. NAMI was started 40 years ago this year. It was started around a kitchen table by mothers who recognized that both of their sons were living with schizophrenia. And they were looking for resources for their sons, as well as resources and support for themselves. And as a result, they created this grassroots group. And there were other founders, but there were two key founders that were just moms looking, you know, there's nothing like a mother that is looking to support their child. They will pull out all stops and do all that needs to be done. So it started 40 years ago with a simple kitchen table conversation and very thought-provoking, resource-rich questions. And it grew from there. And there were other, um, quote-unquote, individuals and, and moms and parents that came to that table to say, let's create something to make a difference. So that's where NAMI started. And what it has grown in is an organization that's got over 600 affiliates and 48 state organizations that are growing. And we're across the country. We train thousands of NAMI volunteers provide peer-led programs to a uh, you know, vast variety of community settings, from churches to schools to, to affiliates. A lot of the sessions are peer-led, and uh, it is to make sure that people understand what resources are there, that they are not alone, and that there is hope. And we provide advocacy and education uh, are two of the linchpins in terms of, of what we do. Can you describe your peer-led programs and who is considered a peer at NAMI? Yeah, a, a peer would be someone that's got lived experience, someone that is, is, is living with a mental condition, uh, a mental illness, that can, that they can speak to either how they've navigated the space or how they navigate it every day, and they can relate to the person. So that is a peer-to-peer kind of a environment. And then we have our family to family, uh, because we know that the family needs support and they need the engagement from the from resources that look like them, that feel like them, that understand what they're going through. Uh, speaking of that, our board, just as a part of our charter, 70% of our board, either directly, individually, or a family member, uh, has a lived experience with mental illness. So we want to live and breathe that which we, we help out in the in the communities. That is wonderful. One of the things that we would like to do is even recognize that more importantly, we'd like to get to people getting help early. And what that means is that we recognize that it can be, what, 11 years, 11 to 14 years before someone actually gets help. And we also recognize that with some uh, serious mental illnesses, the earlier you get help, and it's assessed, detected, and get treatment, more likely it can be managed. My name is Ziza Oyima Aziza. I was diagnosed with a schizoaffective bipolar disorder and PTSD. Essentially it means that you have 
experiences with psychosis, delusions, in addition to a mood disorder, such as bipolar disorder. I was 20 when I knew that something was happening, but still didn't know how to reach out for help. Um, I, I started eating well, I started exercising, I started taking care of myself the best I could, but didn't truly realize that I needed professional help. Can you tell me a little bit more about family to family? How does that work? That is a program that goes over a eight-week period, it used to be a 12-week period, and the families will meet, and they will meet with a, a trainer that actually has a, a program they've been certified in to actually deliver counsel insight into what is your loved one experiencing. The family is all for the family of the loved one that's living with the mental illness. Most often, we will have someone that that family doesn't know what mental illness looks like. They don't know what that loved one is experiencing, and they want to be there for that loved one, but they don't have any idea. They, they're not equipped with the tools in knowing what language to use, what to say, what not to say, what things to identify, and then what to do once they identify it. So that's what family to family does. Before pandemic, it was an in-person session. However, right now we are delivering it virtually uh, and we're using all types of technology where the families can still see each other. But that's what the family program is, is for them to learn how to manage, assess and navigate through that situation successfully for that for that loved one and to be resources for each other coming out of it. Right. That must be so helpful. I think there's so many families that get into a dynamic that is not necessarily helpful to moving forward because they just don't know how to break the cycle, right? They, someone may say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing that sets somebody off and that leads to a whole you know, series of, of actions that, that are not good. And, and again, people just don't know how to get out of the cycle um, that can be very negative or harmful uh, for the person who has a mental health condition, and for the family. That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. Having someone who has experience and to make sure that people have the support and information they need, I, I, I can't think of anything more uh, valuable <laughs> in terms of our, our families, our communities. Uh, I, I want to know, where, where, where are your chapters? Are they all over the country? Do we have them in New York City? Oh, they're all over the country. Yes, they're in the they're they're in rural communities. They're in major metropolitan areas, and there's over 600 between our, our state uh, chapters and our affiliates. Uh, there's over 600 groups across the United States. Does it cost money to join? No, no. We offer all of our services free of charge, and uh, we're just looking to make a difference uh, in people's lives and to help uh, individuals and families living with mental illness. There's no charge to participate. So any family that has a need for support um, because they do have someone in their family who has a mental health condition can contact NAMI um, and, and get that family-to-family -family support or perhaps have their loved one uh, be in a peer-led program to get support. How do people contact NAMI again? Thank you. And there's uh, two ways. Um, um, they could actually call the helpline uh, to, to uh, if they'd like to just call, they can call 800-950-6264. Again, that's 800-950-6264.
or they can go to info at NAMI.org if they'd like to go to the website. In terms of geographically, if they wanted to find the location, they go to NAMI.org slash find support. So we've tr we're trying to provide all methods and vehicles on ramps for people to access our services in our locations. Hi, I'm Matt Kudish, and I'm the executive director of NAMI New York City. NAMI NYC is one of the only organizations that offers peer support services for both individuals living with mental illness and their family members and friends. So if you're living with a mental health condition or you care about someone who is, and if you or someone you care about needs assistance, you can reach out to our helpline by calling 212-684-3264 or emailing helpline at namiNYC.org. Dan, you started at NAMI earlier this year. I'm sure you came in with a lot of plans. And then, boom, global pandemic. How are you adjusting personally and professionally? Thank you. Um, how, how am I doing uh, professionally? You're, you're quite right, and thank you. Uh, the 90-day plan in each one of my um, assignments, I've always had a 90 to 120-day plan. And this is the first time in my, in my adult life, in my working life, that my 90-day plan has just gone right out the window. I mean, literally, it's like, uh, you, you, you think you're going to implement that plan? We got something for you here, and it's called a pandemic. So uh, with that said, <laughs> not just did we have a non, the, the 90 day plan, but we were also moving into a new building. So what does that mean to this conversation is that within two weeks of me starting, which was on the 21st of January, so we were uh, moving into a new building in March and we were in the building no more than maybe a week to 10 days and the pandemic hit and we had to move everyone virtually. So what did that mean is that one, we wanted to make sure the staff was okay and then we have a helpline and our helpline is brick and mortar uh, because it's staffed by uh, volunteers who have lived experience and we provide the technology, we provide the, 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 uh, the, the computers, we, 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 we provide the phone lines and it's an intricate phone system. So the, the bottom line is that once we had to go virtual, we had to figure out how to stand up that helpline virtually with those volunteers. So we were able to you know, really pivot very quickly and get the helpline back up and running uh, with, a, with a virtual model that we did not have in place before. So, you know, it brings in resiliency and your adaptability, and we were able to do that so that we can serve the community. So it's, um, my head is still spinning uh, on my shoulders, quite frankly. Well, I have to say, I applaud you that you were able to make that adaptation so quickly I know that the NAMI helpline has seen a 200% increase in calls since COVID. Um, that, that's a lot of people. That's a, those are a lot of families that are being helped who would not be helped out um, if, if you were not able to, to uh, go by phone, go virtual. So Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. And all the credit goes to the staff. The staff made it happen. And, and, and it's all because it's passionate individuals who really care about this work. Uh, mm -hmm. So because it was more than the technology again. So um, uh, thank you. But uh, yeah, the helpline was able to get back up and running, not just because of technology, but because of the people who really care about helping others and that they they made it a personal um task of theirs to get it back up and running as fast as possible. 
Now, I'm sure they know that people need them now more than ever before. What are you, what are you hearing the most from people, from families who are living with mental health conditions? What are the major concerns that are out there? Thank you. You know, some of the some of the information that we're 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 getting right now is is really a percent of our a, a tremendous percent of our callers are really calling with anxiety and depression, and those are the most common mental health issues that we're experiencing. And then we are also seeing a little bit of a range from uh, asking about access to changes of treatment to the need for financial help and 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 social services. So. It's a it's a whole little uh, uh, cluster of things that we're seeing in terms of our helpline. The other thing that we're seeing is that we do seminars called Ask the Expert, and we also that's externally focused. Uh, so we bring in experts to talk about how to manage through and manage in pandemic and resources. And then we've been doing Ask the Expert sessions for the last couple of years, and. We have seen this year since the pandemic a 433% increase in participation in our Ask the Expert sessions. And then we do one that's for our field, all of our Alliance members and and our service providers, 283% increase in those sessions. So it's just been incredible, the need for resources and for conversations and just to, to, to be able to connect. Oh, we do need more conversations and more connecting. Are your Ask the Expert sessions open to anyone? Uh, Yes, they are. And what are the kinds of um, themes or topics the experts can address? We just had one, our our host that does them with us, by the way, he said to tell you hello, Dr. Ken Duckworth. Oh, yes. Uh, Hello, uh, back. (laughs) Yes. So he... He hosts that for us, and we recently had one that looked at navigating how how do employers navigate the workplace during COVID, and how do leaders in the workplace help their staffs? And that was one that we did, and we did another one with Ken that talked about grief, trauma, anxiety, what that looks like, what's okay to feel, and he talked about managing that which you can. Part of it is that we have Dr. Duckworth do that and we'll bring in resources that will provide information depending on the sector. And this sector was the workplace sector. We just recently did one with a psychologist that was about managing youth during COVID. And we just did that one with uh, with Dr. Duckworth and we had a psychologist that works with uh, young people Uh, from high school down through middle school. And what she spoke to was how to help young people, things to look for, and then how you can actually help that person navigate it. And what do they need when a lot of their socialization and opportunities to socialize have all of a sudden just disappeared? Oh, that is valuable information at a time like this. There are a a lot of parents out there who are very frustrated who've never been in this situation before. No, the chat room for that one was incredible from the standpoint of just the questions. And what was interesting is we had a lot of, uh, I guess you can say mental health folks that called in as well or participate, excuse me, um, uh, online. But they also changed their shoes and said, I'm a parent. And they went in, they went from helping others to being a parent and saying, I need help. Here are my questions. So 
Well, that just shows that you take the hat off and we're all pretty much the same as parents. We, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. There are still challenges that have to be addressed. Now, this COVID-19 pandemic has brought up, uh, brought out our fragmented and, as I said earlier, earlier, savagely unequal um, health system. There have been many vulnerabilities, disparities, and weaknesses um, exposed by it. And I, I think that many, there are many people in communities that may not have a, a, a NAMI or other resources, uh, especially with people who, who look like them. Is there some way that people can plug in and get something going in their community if, for example, is not a NAMI chapter? where they live? Yes, if they uh, are interested in looking to set up a chapter, they can ask about that when they reach out to to NAMI, um, and we would be happy to do that uh, with them and also to point them to any resource that does exist. Uh, but there is definitely inequity and disparity in terms of the communities and uh, the services, and if there's any time that we're seeing it, it's now. These are consequences we're feeling right now with the uh, loss of life that we're going to feel on the other side. So uh, the communities that are underserved will need saturated support. We would uh, definitely point them to nami.org slash find support. And if we don't know of the support, we will try to connect them to support. That is great. You know, crisis sometimes does equal opportunity uh, if we make it so. Uh, I think that this pandemic is forcing us to move in areas like telemedicine, workforce, you know, uh, working from home, thinking more about our children and their mental health needs. Do you, are there any ideas that you have, uh, things that we haven't discussed that we should be thinking about for a successful recovery? Well, I think that one of the things that we've been doing is that in partnership, we've been absolutely um, advocating for better access to telehealth, particularly by phone only. I think to your point before about, you know, not everybody, we believe everybody has got access to that technology, but not everybody's got access to video and broadband. So we've been really advocating uh, for this access where if you don't have video access and you can't afford it or you're not comfortable with it, you can do by phone only telehealth. And fortunately, we're starting to see some results on that one. Yesterday, the administration uh, announced that they're going to cover phone-only telehealth through uh, CMS. Um, so, And we think that this is going to help people get help early and get help easier, if you will, um, and really mm -hmm. to get the mental health support they need right now. So I, I would bring up the telehealth and the teletherapy, and I bring that up because it's important that we recognize things that we are doing right now that, that we hope will continue when we come out of COVID because they are addressing that fragmentation. And telehealth and teletherapy are a few of those, a couple of those. So um, just a couple more questions. I, yes. I, I want to know, like, in a place like New York City, how can community and government work in partnership um, to help our families with the greatest needs? Um, those families uh, who have a family member with a serious mental illness, uh, those families that are living in underserved neighborhoods, uh, what can we be doing right now that we're not doing? 
Well, thank you. And um, so it's a great question. And I think that uh, it starts with leadership. And I think that with great leadership comes a great responsibility. And I think that not being too self-serving, I think that you, you uh, and uh, your husband have really looked at the landscape and said, okay, we need equity and we need to be thinking through this. So I think it, from a leadership standpoint, it's first um, looking at the assets. Where are our assets and where are our at-risk communities? What don't they have that other communities do have? Where are our gaps and what can we do to fulfill those gaps? Some communities have, for their homeless, i.e. they've, they've opened up some of their tier three hotels uh, to bring the homeless in there. So it's really looking at what are the assets or tools that you have that you can bring to those communities most at risk. And a lot of times, as you well know, it's through the faith-based communities that you can do that. And in our day, they were called community centers. Now it's it's really it's it's really that uh, that uh, faith-based uh, establishment that provides at least the knowledge to us that when you go and say, "What do you need?" They've got the you know the knowledge on where the gap is in that community. So that's great advice, and it's something that we take very seriously here in New York City. The faith-based community is, uh, you know, one of the pillars. Keeps us going. Yeah. Uh, We rely on them for so much. So, yeah. And and coming back to that question, I would also look at, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's probably some best practices and you're looking for uh, different uh, kinds of scenarios that can be replicated. So if you find one and it looks good and it has made a difference, can you replicate it? And if it's repeatable, how do you actually take it to that other community and put it in place? Well, I think I'm going to be calling on you in the coming days. <laughs> You've given me a lot of information. You've shared with us a lot of information that I think that I know is going to be useful as we head into the recovery. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I have just one last question, a question I ask all of my guests, and that is, Dan? How do you thrive? I thrive off of the energy of others, thrive off of engagement with uh, people like you. You know, I would say that there was something I learned a long time ago at a leadership summit that's kind of my mantra. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's where I get my energy. Um, So, um, you know, that's people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And having the opportunity to speak with you and to, to, and engage uh, with 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 you is 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 the answer to that question. Well, I I feel the same way. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today, and to be part of this podcast. I really, really admire your passion, your commitment, and I will be calling on you because I am passionate about this work, and I want to know, you know how we can how we can do more together. Dan and I talk about peer specialists, counselors with lived experience with mental illness who help support people who are navigating similar challenges. Peers are an important focus of NAMI's work and New York City's. So we want to share the story of how one peer counselor found his calling. His name is Puneet. My story, it's all over the place to put it 
a bit simpler is that I got a diagnosis. It made it difficult to find employment with, and this internship has really taken all of that and let it be a strength. No longer does it feel like my story or my history is a barrier to employment. It's exactly why I should be employed. Puneet struggled with ADHD, depression, and anxiety from an early age that affected every aspect of his life. After leaving his first job as an EMS worker, due to his anxiety, Puneet found help through Thrive NYC. I should be clear that finding Thrive NYC and Thrive at Work, not something I, I imagined myself doing. But now that I'm here, it's something I can't imagine being without. Puneet found support for himself through Thrive NYC's peer specialist training. Receiving his peer specialist certification led Puneet to an internship where he helps others who experience mental health issues. My whole life has been about finding places to help people and I wanted to use that same skill for other people and that, that's what Goodwill, the PAL program, has done for me. It's taken away the stigma of whatever I've been through and given me a skill to see that people succeed and guide them to their goals. I think the great thing about peer work is that it takes away the stigma and try to show people or guide people back to their power again. Thank you to Puneet for sharing his story and thank you again to my guest, Dan Gillison, and all the staff and volunteers at NAMI Affiliates across the country.